Welcome to Between the Gutters, where we talk about the stories within the panels. I'm your co-host, Albert, and with us is our other co-host. I'm the other co-host, Drew. He is the other brother, mother. Mother, brother. I got nothing. I don't I don't <laughs> even know why I try. Anyways, just to jump right into it. So, last year we completed our read-through of Invincible, and we decided for this year we were going to do another read-through of a series uh, that we would do a volume of every month all the way through to the end of the year. And uh, as we announced in that episode, this year our read-through will be Gundam The Origin. Mobile Suit Gundam The Origin. So, Drew, you're the Mobile Suit Gundam expert here amongst the two of us, so please, uh, let's... Let's hear some of the credentials and the 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 back back matter of the series. Okay, well, I don't know if I'd call myself an expert, but I'm definitely a longtime fan. The series that we're th- going to be discussing this year is Mobile Suit Gundam: The Origin by Yoshikazu Yasuhiko, and it's based on the old. Gundam story uh, from the original series, Mobile Suit Gundam, from 1979. And that story was created and directed by Yoshiyuki Tomino, who gets a credit for on the manga as well, just because of, you know, because of the story. And the mechanical designs are by Kunio Okawara, who designed the mobile suits and the mecha in the original series. This is a manga series that in English at least it's it's published by Vertical and the translator is Melissa Tanaka. This is a series that is collected in English in 12 volumes. It's like a reimagining of the 1979 Mobile Suit Gundam TV series. Gundam is one of those massive franchises, right? Like it's mm. it's it's huge. It's a it's a big thing that makes a whole bunch of money with merchandising, the plastic model kits. They're constantly churning out more and more anime. Yeah. It's just a, it's it's like a big, a really big pop culture. It's a tower. franchise juggernaut. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. You know? Like I, I don't know. I'm not gonna presume that everyone knows about Gundam over here on on this side of the pond or this side of the world, but it's a pretty Pretty popular worldwide, mm-hmm. as far as I can tell, as far as I know. Yeah, most people probably know what Gundam is, or they can recognize the yeah. giant robot. They might yeah. not know exactly yeah. that it's a Gundam that they're looking at, but they recognize people, it. You know, tourists that go to Japan, there I see a lot of people taking pictures next to the Gundam, the giant Gundam they have there. You know, like the life-size one that they built. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you you always see those. Um, yeah, anyone who's interested in anime or manga has got to be aware of it, even if yeah. they haven't watched it or or read any of it. I mean, just to just to clarify, like let's let's assume that no one really knows like what a Gundam is, but just can you give like a brief sentence of what a Gundam is? I don't know if I could give a brief sentence. I can okay. try and give a few sentences. <laughs> So, I said one sentence, damn it. <laughs> I can't do that on the spot, man. I'm I'm a I'm a podcaster, not I would hate to see what you would be like if you were forced to pee on the spot into a well, cup. 
I usually take care of that business before we start recording. So if you demanded me to give you a urine sample right now, I would have a pretty tough time. So you're saying that you don't think that the power of fear and tension would be able to force your bladder muscles to squeeze out even an ounce? You would have to do something that would really shake me to the core. Okay, I accept that. I'll I'll have to think on what exactly I would have to do, but it, you, you'd it's have certainly to scare a challenge. Me. You would really have to scare me to make well, me lose control of my bodily functions. Well, Drew, Drew, Drew is a man of fortitude. He don't scare easily. I would say, knowing him as I do, sharing the same life experiences that we've shared, the one thing that truly frightens the both of us is a lifetime of loneliness. So far, our lives have been pretty lonely. We live in a constant state of heightened fear. Yeah. That being Therefore, said, I'm it takes a lot. missing myself. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just swimming in my own urine. <laughs> okay, okay. You, you took that down a direction I wasn't expecting. Got it, I man. am just drenched. Just drenched in bodily fluids. <laughs> He's got no control of his bladder. He can't control yeah. his bowels. <laughs> what am I living for, people? But yeah, like, so, uh, you know, for presuming that someone's listening to this doesn't really know what a Gundam is, uh, you know, it's a it's a pretty unique name. You mind just giving it a, a, a brief descriptor of what exactly a Gundam is? The Gundam is a specific type of giant robot in these stories, in the stories that are they're typically called, the robots are typically called mobile suits, and the Gundam is usually the one that is a little bit more powerful than all the other ones. The protagonist is usually the pilot of, of the Gundam, but there's tons of Gundam stories, so that's not always the pattern in this story, at least it would be fair to describe it that way. The Gundam franchise is usually a story where it's a war story, a science fiction war story, that's also, uh, you know, got political intrigue, probably some coming-of-age stuff and some romance and a lot of commentary on war and authority and military fanaticism. So it touches on a lot of those concepts, but it's dressed up in this really entertaining vision of a future that has giant robots beating the crap out of each other. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. See, you did well. You got it. What's your familiarity with Gundam? Uh, I'd say I'm on the uh, I'm on the end of the spectrum that's not too familiar with it. It's something where, as a kid growing up, I definitely recognize the name just because I I would go to r like random toy stores in like Chinatown or Japantown, and I'd see this very specific robot design and that was pretty much about it so i was aware that as a property it existed i was aware that it was a cool looking robot and a toy that i would have wanted but i never was actually able to get one because you know i didn't have any money mm -hmm. i think as the years went on i i i, I came to understand the association or I, I i came to understand that there was more to it beyond the toys that 
there was TV shows and uh, manga that were associated with it. But uh, again, this was just a thing where as I was growing up, I didn't really have access to the cartoons. And, you know, in a pre-internet age uh, or or the early ages of the internet, like it wasn't really... Uh, like anime wasn't readily available you know you like you had to go to special stores for it and yeah i wasn't able to get to those stores even so so for a large chunk of my life i i wasn't uh i didn't have any access to it so uh coming into this book now this is actually well i did uh watch one anime series one of the spin-off not uh, would that be considered a spin-off uh i wouldn't call are you are you referring to iron-blooded orphans i was gonna say uh war in the pocket but okay yeah i mean i i I don't really consider those spin-offs i just consider that its own series okay okay yeah Okay, so I watched, like, one of the other uh, series that they produced under the Gundam umbrella, um, but when I was a kid, uh, but other than that, yeah, I didn't really have too much access to it, so reading Mobile Suit Gundam The Origin, that was my first exposure to this particular story. Um, It's definitely my first reading of a a Gundam manga. Mm-hmm. So I, I'm coming into this pretty blind, you know? Yeah, totally fair. And I think that's absolutely fine as well, because this is a comic that is intended for new readers. Like they, he definitely wanted something to please the longtime fans. And I think pretty much every old fan who had grown up watching the original series loved the manga just as much but there was also this intent to create a manga that would draw in a new audience and in fact uh, one of the reasons why they asked him to do this is because they wanted to reach a, a north american audience so here, here's a little bit more uh, specific context for the history of mobile suit gundam so the other thing I, I want to make a distinction on is is that Gundam is a franchise. So if I just if we're just talking about Gundam as a whole, usually we we just call it Gundam. But Mobile Suit Gundam is the name of the original series that aired in Japan in 1979. It lasted 43 episodes. So even though it's it's called Mobile Suit Gundam, uh, most a lot of fans call it different things. Like again, Gundam is one of those things that's so vast that there's entire groups of fandoms that arise around it. You know, kind of like how Star Trek has Trekkies or Trekkers and Star Wars fans. There are some really hardcore ones that you know mm-hmm. consume pretty much everything that's associated with with the franchise. And and Mobile Suit Gundam fans tend to call it either First Gundam or Gundam 0079. So those are the pretty common names for for Mobile Suit Gundam. And the reason why uh, it's called 0079 
sometimes is because there's this uh in the story there's this fictional calendar a futuristic calendar called the universal century which is the timeline that the mainstream gundams take place in and it's uh you know universal century year 0079 uh but i guess i personally just tend to call it first gundam so first gundam was originally created and directed by yoshiyuki tomino so he was the director of the series and uh, yoshikazu yasuhiko who created this manga that we're going to be discussing he was the character designer he was also the chief animation director he also did key animation on the series so basically he's like the number two dog and on the series and he was responsible for the visual aesthetics of pretty much everything except for perhaps the mecha but all of the people all of the um characters and and probably the locations he had a good amount of influence over how the show really looked from a, a visual standpoint and i know that i know from watching uh, some documentaries and reading interviews he also had input on on the story but usually when we think of the creator of of gundam we think of yoshiyuki tomino who, who's also done a lot of stuff in in anime he's directed a whole bunch of uh, other robot shows one of the significant things about first gundam that sets it apart from a lot of the other robot shows that we had uh prior to it is that this is this is the show that kind of defined a new genre or a new subgenre because prior to Mobile Suit Gundam, there were a lot of other shows that had giant robots, but they were they tended to be like superhero robots, you know, like they like you have things like Gigantor or Mazinger Z, mm. you know, these are these are robots that are either aliens or created by a mad scientist. They're kind of unique, one of a kind. It was They're kind of much... along the lines of like Power Rangers or something. Yeah, kind of like Power Rangers, where they're they're fighting aliens or guys named Doctor Hell, you know, <laughs> things like that. <laughs> uh, I you hear Doctor Hell got his degree from ITT Technical Institute. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so it, it was it was a style of storytelling where usually those kind of stories were about little kids who would you know talk to their robot and and it would you know do special moves to destroy bad guys and monsters and stuff yeah another one I, I just remembered voltron that was something i was familiar with yeah yeah i think voltron yeah. came out after mobile suit gundam though okay okay yeah yeah this, this, so when mobile suit gundam came out that was the one of the first if not the first uh series that treated them the mobile or the mecha as tools basically they were just normal machines that could break down, that needed ammo, that could uh, run out of fuel or whatever, you know, that needed maintenance. They were um, utility uh, yeah. vehicles, kind of, as opposed yeah. to super science weapons. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. And it, it 
because of that, it ended up having a pretty big influence on a lot of the the types of stories that people started to tell in in anime, especially the ones that involved giant robots. You started to get more realistic depictions of mecha in shows like Armored Trooper Votums or Super Dimensional Fortress Macross. You know, things that treated the the robots as just vehicles. They're kind of like, you know, the equivalent of tanks or fighter jets in our day. And it wasn't until, uh, you know, this show came out that that delineation between the super robot genre and the real robot genre came about. On top of that, uh, I mentioned earlier that the mechanical designer on this series was Kunio Okawara, and he was basically the first person that was credited, officially credited as a mecha designer. So, you know, it just kind of shows you the influence and the impact that the show had because this guy's job designing the giant robots for a show, that ended up becoming a genuine profession you know like people like after him there were other people who could get jobs specifically just to design the machines in different shows and Mm. and movies so yeah it it had a pretty big impact in terms of of uh just changing the anime industry right right now for for our purposes because we're reading this comic it's it's interesting because it's kind of this modern take on an older story right because first gundam came out in 1979 but yasuhiko did the comic he started it in 2001 and he finished it in 2011 so it was quite a number of years after the original series had had run its course Mm. Another interesting factoid is that this series, it it didn't do too well when it first was broadcast on TV. Like it was supposed to be something like, I think 50 or maybe even 52 episodes. But partway through this series run, uh, the toys weren't selling well. So the sponsors started pulling out and uh, they shortened the series. They wanted to cancel it and, and make it like 30, 39 episodes. And then I think Tomino ended up negotiating and he got four more so it Mm. ended up being a total of 43 episodes uh and yeah like the the toys the toys weren't doing too well and it wasn't until a couple like a year or two later when he was able to create theatrical versions of the series so he basically negotiated with uh I, I don't know the, the sponsors or whoever was making the decisions. Uh, he ended up making compilation movies of the entire series. So he made a trilogy of movies and those movies ended up doing amazingly well. Like they, those movies put Gundam on the map along with the sales of the model kits, because after, after the toy sponsors kind of bailed out the, the, they tried doing model kits but the plastic models where you got to assemble them and those ended up becoming a massive hit. So because between the model kits and the, 
and the movies, Mobile Suit Gundam became a massive phenomenon and ended up, you know, spawning a whole bunch of other series and sequels and, and uh, you know, unrelated shows that just bore the Gundam name. Mm. That were, you know, mm. things set in an alternate timeline. It, it became, it like, I think to an outsider, Gundam is one of those things that can be kind of in, impenetrable. It's kind of like American comics like superhero comics where there's like all these different all these different titles different uh eras and uh you know reboots and whatnot so i can imagine for somebody who isn't familiar or didn't grow up reading american comics they might not know where to begin because like it's overwhelming yeah like with yeah. most with a lot of manga you can just find volume one and start from there very straightforward yeah. right but with a lot of american comics where, do you really want to start with with uh you know Batman number one or Detective Comics number one and just work your way up to a thousand something or whatever they're on? Now? <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's a. Uh, I mean, there there are some people who feel like they need to go all the way back to to those particular comics. You know, I, I think there's value in watching something or reading something like you know Amazing Fantasy fifteen. For for sure, right? Mm-hmm. But uh, I don't think I could really recommend like reading every single comic from there onward to 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 get the fictional history of this one character, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's pretty. That's that's just too much. Yeah, yeah, man. Uh, you you want to be able to just enjoy what you enjoy and uh. If it means cherry picking like the good stuff, sometimes that's what you gotta do. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah, but like you mentioned, this version of Gundam was ba- essentially a repackaging of the original source material for a more contemporary audience, right? Yeah, and I think one of the things that makes it kind of unusual is that it's not it's not a straight up adaptation of an of the anime. And it, it's not by, you know, a super fan who grew up loving the series. It's oh. actually by one of the co-creators, you know? So yeah. from that standpoint, that I think that makes it far more interesting. Because if it, if it were just um, a straight adaptation by a super fan or, you know, just some young guy that loved it when he was growing up and wanted to do justice to to the story like that that would be one thing like that that could still be enjoyable in and of itself but there's an extra an extra weight to it knowing that one of the chief men responsible for the original series was willing to to go back to re-explore some of the ideas exactly exactly yeah i thought you were gonna say that it wasn't someone who was a super fan who reinterpreted the show, but someone who grew up absolutely hating Gundam. <laughs> I would have been like, wow, that was a ballsy choice on their part. <laughs> that would that could be interesting too. Yeah. Someone who just has zero affinity for the genre of Mecha or even the uh the the any any real connection to the the property of Gundam whatsoever, maybe even a a hate for it, 
writing <laughs> what their version, what their idea of a good Gundam story looks like. Yeah, yeah, that would that would be that would be pretty bizarre. That would be highly unusual. I can't I can't really think of any adaptation that came about in that sort of way. Now I kind of want to see it just because, you know, it just I'd just be really curious about what they would do to, you know, to change it up. It, it we could end up uh, with something like Michael Bay's Transformers, if if he <laughs> if he's a guy who grew up hating Transformers, and he made those movies because he wanted to make something he liked. Yeah, <laughs> he's a guy who thought he was too cool for Transformers and wanted to reimagine it in a way that he could take it seriously. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and they sucked. <laughs> those movies were terrible. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, anyway, there there's a, a whole lot of fascinating history around First Gundam and just the Gundam franchise as a whole. And there if for those of our listeners if if you're interested in learning or hearing a bit more about it, there are some other really good podcasts that you can check out. Like there's a, this one podcast called uh Mobile Suit Breakdown that Basically, it's it's two people who who watch every episode or every piece of Gundam animation and devote like full episodes to breaking them down and dissecting them. Uh, they, they do a lot of research, so you get a whole lot of historical context um, about what was going on in, in the world and maybe things that influenced the stories. But if you listen to to if you check out that podcast, um, the, one of their earlier episodes has a pretty good historical uh summary of of the history of of gundam another podcast that talks about uh mecca is is called mecha nations that's a podcast where i think currently they're they're actually doing like an episode by episode uh breakdown of first gundam and if you look into their archives they did like a two or three hour episode uh two or three hour long episode that was just about the origins of first Gundam and, and like all the people involved in it and things that they were doing to, uh, uh, things that influenced them and, and all of that. So yeah, those would be like good starting points. If you're genuinely interested in in learning more about Gundam, there's also a, an NHK documentary. I think you can find it on YouTube. I think it's just called the, the men who made Gundam, or something similar to that. Um, very, very informative if you like kind of behind-the-scenes uh, retrospectives uh, on, you know, classic works. Mm. But uh, yeah, today, uh, you know, that that that's not really too important because we're we're strictly we're primarily going to be talking about the comic. Um, and hopefully, uh, we gave you enough information about what Gundam is and and just the enormity of it and and uh, the popularity of it and and like what it stands for. Uh, anything else that you want to get into before we kind of dive into this, Albert? No, I think we covered a lot of the 
solid fundamentals in terms of uh, background information that could be useful to understanding Gundam as a whole uh, and what we what we've read. So I'm uh, I'm good to go. Okay, cool, man, cool. So uh, I I do have one question for you though before we get too deep into the book, but I was I was just curious if you had any opinions about the mecha genre in general like did you is it is is mecha ever was it ever anything that you gravitated towards or or looked for sought out Mm. so as a kid um you know I'm, i'm just gonna keep going back to the same point that i mentioned earlier like i i really didn't have access to a lot of mecha um you know, a lot of shows that within that genre, I would say that the the primary source of access to a lot of these types of shows was just stuff that they dubbed for TV. So I do remember watching a little bit of Robotech, but, you know, thinking back now, uh, all those all these years later, like I really I just remembered seeing maybe a couple episodes, but it wasn't something that, as a kid, I didn't even really wrap my head around the 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 idea that shows were coming on on a regular schedule. So <laughs> I would just watch things as they appeared, you know, like if they just happened to be on TV or whatever. So, you know, I watched a little bit of Robotech, and um, I didn't really watch hardly any Gundam I, I like there was that one miniseries uh war war in the pocket that was that was something that I happened to watch that I ended up renting from uh, a local Chinese uh video shop and I remember watching that and it wasn't even something that was dubbed in English or had subtitles so when I was watching it it was from what I remember it was either in Japanese or dubbed in Chinese and either way I didn't understand any of it but it was still something where even just watching the animation I got enough of the story and I was able to fill in the blanks as a kid mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but yeah in terms of like Mecca I I I knew that it was cool to look at the robots were cool and the designs were cool but Again, it was just not something that I ever really had too much access to. So uh, as a kid growing up, I was definitely more into just Western comic books and Western cartoons. Um, Yeah. And it wasn't probably until, yeah, probably maybe like high school, middle school, where I started getting into anime more. And even then, it wasn't even really the mecha anime. Like, I'd I'd say like the like now that I'm thinking about it, the first real uh, mecha anime that I was like really into was probably uh, Neon Genesis Evangelion. But mm-hmm. that's kind of a that's kind of a different animal than something like Gundam, you know. If you think but, about it, the original Gundam had a pretty big influence on Evangelion. Yeah, I well, I mean, I don't really know uh, what the connection is because again, I, I'm I'm not really too super familiar with Gundam. But wait, did um, you read uh, Hideaki Anno's essay or his little afterword in this book? Oh no, I I didn't get a chance to check it out. But uh, okay, yeah, I mean, he 
it, it's definitely something that he grew up loving yeah probably about as much as space battleship yamato yeah um and and i think one of the other interesting hallmarks of the real robot genre that first gundam established is the fact that the protagonist even though he was still technically a kid he was a little bit older than your typical kid protagonist because he was an, a teenager but he was also somebody who didn't necessarily want to be a a robot pilot you know like yeah. he was somebody that was he's he, there's a sense of reluctance on the part of amaro ray to jump into the mobile suit and continue to you know basically kill people yeah it, and i think that that's something that you started to see a little bit more often where the heroes were more conflicted and they weren't just you know rah rah getting to the robot and and just you know smash all our enemies and and we're all good you know like there's a this sense of of uh i don't know trauma or or pain associated with having to do something that you don't necessarily want to yeah. do yeah yeah no i could definitely see that i mean now that you mention it like when i'm thinking of neon genesis evangelion and the main characters and what we what i just read in you know uh, mobile suit gundam the origin there i guess it treats their role as the pilots of these essentially death machines mm -hmm. with a sense of reality in that i think for the longest time the way that it was portrayed was that a lot of people thought oh you get to be in this giant robot how cool is that you get to blow stuff up that's that must be so fun, right? But the reality of it is, again, these are killing machines. And when you send them out and people die, that has a way of warping people. Yeah. Especially the ones that pilot them, you know? So, yeah, especially because those pilots are kids. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Especially in this case, right? Or in these two instances. So there's yeah. definitely... I, I could definitely see that as uh, a theme or a thread that runs through both of these shows, for sure. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. And actually, another tidbit, but Anno himself, in the early days of Gainax, like right around the late 80s, there was a, a Mobile Suit Gundam theatrical movie. Anno actually did some mechanical designs for it. So he, yeah, he's he's no no stranger to to Gundam. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I. I, I don't know officially what, what his involvement was, but again, like it wouldn't surprise me if he was heavily influenced by, by Gundam, you know? Mm -hmm. but mm -hmm. It's like we mentioned, like this this is a a property that's been around for a very long time and it's just kind of a juggernaut. So yeah, no surprise there. Yeah. It's funny to think about how when we were kids our access to anime was so limited. Mm -hmm, but mm -hmm. but somehow we both still learned what Gundam was before before uh, Gundam Wing came to to the states. Like I think for for most people, especially anime fans who are probably you know somewhere between five to ten years younger than us, Gundam Wing is the the flashpoint. You know, like that's the one that it's the only Gundam that's ever been popular in America. That was mm -hmm. the one that that was on. Uh, Tsunami network. Tsunami, yeah. 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 So that that one actually got pretty popular and got a lot of people into anime. But 
by the time that one came out, I, I didn't, number one, I didn't have cable. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. uh, so I, I still didn't have access to it, even if, even though at the time I, I wanted to watch it. Um, and that, that show is quite different, uh, from the book that we're reading, you know, the original Gundam story. It, it has a lot of similarities in terms of of like the general themes and, and ideas, but I think in, in terms of execution, it, it's pretty different and it's it's not something that, that holds up today. Mm-hmm. Like I've like years years after the fact I I finally had access to it um when I was an adult and I tried watching it. I, I think I watched maybe like ten or twelve episodes of, of Gundam Wing. And I was like, yeah, I think I'm I'm good off this, you know. Like I've <laughs> I've seen enough. <laughs> like well, it, it just it just didn't hit me the same way it would have hit me if I had been able to watch it when I really wanted to watch it at the age of you know, thirteen or fourteen. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm kind of curious. Like, what what would you say was its failing or its primary yeah failing? Mm-hmm. I think. Probably the biggest one was how zany it ended up being. Like it, it's a show that definitely plays things super straight. Like it, I don't, I don't think that it's really trying to be ironic or anything. But it it tries to be a serious show. But there's a lot of silly stuff that ends up happening. Like there's this whole, if you just watch the first episode, like there's this whole sequence where, where uh one of the main Gundam pilots, he's you know, obviously a high school age kid, but he ends up going to this uh, prestigious, like upper class private school, and he he meets he meets uh you know the main female character, and there's a scene where where she invites him to her birthday party because she's you know sociable like that, and so she mm-hmm. you know walks up to him and gives him this fancy invitation in an envelope. And all her friends are standing behind her, you know, just watching this momentous occasion of her deciding to gift this new student with an invitation to her birthday. <laughs> and she she gives him this envelope and then he he takes it, he tears it up in front of her <laughs> and he walks up to her and he says, I'll kill you. And he walks past her. <laughs> What's so zany about that? That's exactly what I would have <laughs> on top of that, as he walks past her, a tear comes out of her eye, and he wipes it off her face. <laughs> it's like it's it's like the kind of thing that that's so full of angst that I would have just eaten it up when I was a kid, you know. Like it, it's it's absolutely something I would have loved as a kid, but just as a, an adult, it 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 I can't take it seriously in the same way where I can still kind of suspend my disbelief for something like First Gundam. Or you know, a lot of other Gundam shows have aged pretty well, but not that one, in my opinion. Yeah. Like it, it, that one was also notice, notable for having five main Gundam pilots, and they were all like teenage boys. So it was it was the the boy band version of Gundam. <laughs> when you put it like that, that's pretty funny. <laughs> yeah, yeah, uh. it, that's really what it was. I mean, to be honest, from what I've from just reading magazines and and things like that, I I know that it had a pretty big female audience. Oh, huh. Yeah. Huh. I re- I remember I would read uh anime magazines at the time, and and that would be one of the things that 
they'd always mention and and there would be a lot of female reader or viewers that would write in you know praising the show and and talking about it um but then i think that phenomenon even goes all the way back to first gundam in the 70s because even though as a as a show that was primarily aimed at little little boys to sell toys uh it actually drew in an audience that was a little bit older so it got more teenagers and and college students and i think in one of the interviews i read in the, or heard in the documentary i think they men- they even mentioned like at least a third of the fans were were female fans too that's pretty substantial that's not a small chunk yeah yeah well i mean i guess that goes to the idea that for a franchise that continually reinvents itself in different ways maybe maybe that's you know their market right Mm -hmm. so uh i'm kind of curious to hear what your what the response to your own question was just in terms of uh yeah like any thoughts you might have on on the mecha genre and yeah just you know seeing as how you're someone who had a different experience with it growing up than i did and uh definitely more of a a love for it like Mm -hmm. i'm yeah i i i just thought maybe you could enlighten us in terms of like what it was that caught your attention and kept you coming back to it well as a kid i was just really into giant robots i don't know if it gets any more complicated than that (laughs) i mean that that's really what it boils down to when i was a kid obviously transformers was the big thing for for our generation but uh, did you go out of your way to like track because like I, i i mean i liked giant robots too but i didn't I didn't like continue to uh, feed that love for it. Uh, maybe it's just a testament to how lazy I was as a kid. But I was like, "Oh, that's cool," <laughs> but I can't find it anywhere, so I'm just not gonna look for it. You know? <laughs> no, I, I constantly looked, man. I was I was searching high and low for for this stuff, and it, okay. it was it wasn't easy to find. Um, you know, like you were saying back in the '90s, early mid '90s anime i knew what anime was uh-huh. just from from uh either reading magazines or or having like older cousins or or just you know older people in my life that that uh would show show me what what it was you know um so mm-hmm. I, I knew there was a distinction between your typical american cartoons that you would see on the disney afternoon versus some kind of anime that you could only get at the video store or a specialty store. Yeah. But it, it was also like prohibitively expensive for a yeah. kid. Like yeah. Back then, like an anime videotape could have like two episodes, but it would be like 35 bucks. Yeah. It was not a cheap hobby by any means. Yeah. So I guess so you, I would just get lucky with, with whatever stuff that, uh, you know, blockbuster would have or, mm. um, you know, like what you were mentioning earlier, the the Asian video stores would would often have access to those things. Um, and I didn't even have a VHS player until I was probably in middle school, or my family didn't get one until I was in middle school. But that was pretty much right about the time when I started looking for 
that kind of entertainment, you know? Like, prior to that, I, I think I was just fine with whatever was easily available. But by the time I was in middle school, I was looking for, uh, you know, Japanese stuff. You know, I was really into video games, and I would read video game magazines. So they would occasionally mention anime or or have little sections about games that were only available in Japan because they were based on some anime that wasn't available in America, you know? Mm. I, I think that was part of my exposure to it. And and then discovering manga, you know, just like the I think I've mentioned before how there was a period in in my uh, teenage years when I kind of got tired of American comics because of the clone saga in Spider-Man and and uh what was it? The Age of Apocalypse and Onslaught and and just you know like just all that stuff. That '90s crap. <laughs> yeah, all that '90s crap just broke my interest in in superheroes. So I would, but I would still go to the comic book store just to look at stuff. And that was when Viz was publishing manga in, you know, in the kind of that North American comic book format. You know, not. It's, it wasn't like those bound volumes that we see today that that are so familiar, but they were like actual, you know, 30 page comic book issues. So I, I would see different comics, um, things that I never heard of and just, you know, salivate over them. And occasionally uh, my parents would give me some money and I could I could buy a few of them. And I think Gundam started to finally come to America in the later 90s, like maybe around. I want to say like 90, 97 or 98. Like most people remember Gundam Wing, but because that was the one that was on TV. But before Gundam Wing, they actually did uh, Mobile Suit Gundam 0083 Stardust Memory, which was a 13 episode original video animation series. And they, they actually translated that and brought that out on videotape here. And they even brought the uh, original Mobile Suit Gundam movie trilogy. So, like, those were the things that I grew up watching. That was, those two things were my first exposure to to Gundam. And it it wasn't easy to obtain those things, man, because those tapes were were not cheap. Mm. Like, I had a buddy who was also into anime, and we were, you know, we went to the same school and stuff. So when uh, Stardust Memory was being released on videotape, I remember it was two episodes per tape and the dubbed episodes were 10 bucks cheaper than the subtitled ones so we would always buy the dub just because it was cheaper <laughs> and he would buy the even numbered volumes and i would buy the odd numbered volumes and that way we wouldn't have to spend <laughs> as much money and we could just share <laughs> man see that's how much you loved anime is you were willing to even go and watch the dubs that says something. <laughs> if it meant that the, the the easiest way that you could get access to it was putting yourself through a dub, you were willing to do it. I was, man. That's that's, that's how much I loved anime. I was I was super <laughs> in, interested in in discovering Gundam, and and those definitely did not disappoint me. I was so yeah. The the story of First Gundam is something that is familiar to me because of those movies that I was able to watch uh, as a teenager. And it, it's, yeah, it's always something that stuck out to me, even though the animation is obviously old. It, it's from the late 70s and, and early 80s. But the the story and 
the characters you know th- those are those those still pretty much hold up you know like mm. i'm not going to say that they're not dated at all but i think the core of the story is strong enough where i can easily overlook the dated elements and just enjoy it for for what it is and and what it has to say mm. <laughs> sounds good sounds good so you want to dive into uh the actual work itself or did was there anything else that you wanted to mention or discuss before we move forward i think we can go ahead and go straight into the book now i mean we've kind of meandered enough with these uh tangents and and backstories (laughs) well i don't i i think the context is important just to you know kind of to draw attention to what it is about this particular work and uh why it's something that we chose to to go over you know you can say that, but really, I just like it when people listen to what I have to say. I thought that was the entire reason why we started a podcast. Good point. <laughs> <laughs> I'm tired of no one acknowledging or me in real life or listening to anything that I have to say. So I just decided to come here because I could at least tell myself that maybe, just maybe, someone is listening. <laughs> <laughs> So I'm curious about your perspective, though. So this being your first engagement with the story of First Gundam, I want to get your perspective on it. I'm I'm interested in in hearing your thoughts on it. And I want to ask you if you were to give a brief synopsis or a brief summary of volume one of the origin, how would you boil it down, Albert? Um... I do think it's a work that's deceptively simple because on the surface it it feels like it's pretty straightforward but uh i think there's a lot of subtlety to it uh i'd really have to think about it further to really to really break down and uh parcel out what what the individual elements are but on the face of it it, it just seems to it's a story that takes place in the future, and it's about how, um, you know, mankind has explored and tamed the vast reaches of space, but um, established uh, all their various colonies. What ends up happening is, naturally, mankind tends to turn turn against itself and that's what happens one of the colonies in the furthest reaches of space i think what were they called the principality yeah they called themselves the principality of zeon and declared independence from the earth federation yeah and you know whenever anyone tries to uh secede naturally there's going to be friction between the two uh opposing forces right Mm-hmm. And that's that's kind of just where the story starts. Um, is it it? I guess I guess that you could say it starts in medias res in that you know it it begins very briefly up front with with just that bit of information, and and it jumps right into the fact that uh, these two opposing governments are uh are working against each other's goals and uh slowly 
Uh, like, I don't know if they're quite in a place where there there's a Cold War, but th- it's not quite at a place where it's a hot war either, you know? They're mm-hmm. essentially marshalling whatever their resources are and getting ready to prepare for whatever conflict is on the horizon. And as this, and this first chunk of the story is about how uh, the Principality of Xeon... Uh, invades one of the colonies only to discover that within the colony is this special Gundam unit suit that they've been working on. It's, it's, you know, like you said, uh, the Gundam is usually the special one, right? And Mm -hmm. so naturally this, this particular suit is tougher or better than the other suits, uh, than most, if not all the other mecha that are in existence. Right. Mm hmm. Uh, they introduce various characters, and and this is kind of the the more one of the more I guess superhero-y elements of the book. But what mm-hmm. ends up happening is kind of a, a a young kid slash almost everyman type of character. His dad uh, has been working on on the schematics for this Gundam, and they establish early on that this kid. I don't even know if he's a kid. He might be just a young man. He's you 15 know? years old. I think they oh, okay. even say it in the story. Yeah. Okay, so I, I might have missed that detail, but he's he's a teenager and he's been going over these schematics, so he has some familiarity with it. So when the attack happens, you know, chaos ensues, and in the middle of it all, the kid ends up. What's his name? Amano. Amaro. Amaro. Uh huh. Amaro yeah. Ray. Amaru Ray, he ends up getting into the pilot seat and he has just enough information to pilot the most powerful weapon in their universe, I guess, at this <laughs> point. And, you know, he just, by the skin of his teeth, is able to uh, deflect and beat a bunch of these uh, opposing uh mech units i i forget what they're what they're called zaku or is yeah you remember there's yeah, okay yeah that's right yeah so the the enemy um uh, uh mechas are called zakus and he's able to beat them and um you know that's that's essentially where where a good chunk of the story lies uh after that it's it's a bunch of back and forth between the principality forces and the federation and you follow the the thread of a bunch of the characters who are either members of the Federation colonists or um, some of the military people within the Federation as they try to cobble together uh, a working unit in order to defend themselves and the Federation. Mm-hmm. Um yeah, without going into too much detail, that's that's essentially the story. Like, I don't, I don't know how how did that sound? Pretty accurate. Yeah, yeah, pretty yeah. accurate, man. Yeah, that's good. Yeah. Um, did you yeah. feel lost at any point? You know, I feel like for for me, because it, like not only have I watched the movies, and uh, you know, this is not even my first time reading the series. I've I've read this whole thing once. So this was my second time reading it for mm-hmm. the podcast. Um, yeah, so I was wondering if there was anything where you felt what might have been confusing or you would want more backstory or context. 
Yeah, yeah. I I actually ended up uh, messaging you while I was reading it. Like, um, there were certain things where the way that they write the the manga, the way that uh, Amuro uh, or Yoshiko Yoshikazu Yoshikao Yoshiko. You can just call him Yaz. Yaz! Yaz! Anyways. That's his nickname. (laughs) Well, but the way that he writes it, um, you know, he doesn't treat the audience like they're stupid or anything like that. So there's, uh, I guess the only way I can describe it is a sophistication to his storytelling and a faith in the reader that they'll, like, pick up on some of these, uh, some, some of the details of his world building. Yeah, he doesn't so, exposit everything. Exactly, exactly. Like, whereas, whereas the TV show was clearly for kids, the this this comic, it's more adult-oriented, you know? Because, like you said, he respects the intelligence of, of the audience. Yeah. Like, it's, yeah, it's interesting that you say that, like, because you mentioned how this was a work that was, it's kind of a remix of an existing story, and you mentioned earlier that this was something made for Western audiences, right? Uh, I think that's like, what they they aspired to. I, yeah. like the other thing, uh, another tidbit about uh, Mobile Suit Gundam: The Origin is that before this came out, before Vertical did these translations, Viz actually translated the book and tried to put it out back in the early 2000s but it just didn't sell well so they never were able to finish it did that have a different uh translation uh like i i think it did it it probably did okay huh yeah yeah I, i guess now that i've read this i'd be curious to see like how those two translations uh compare to one another Mm hmm but yeah, there were there were some moments where I had to message you uh, in chat, and I was just like, okay, I just want to be clear that I'm understanding this right because there's a lot of uh, terminology that they built into it for their world building uh, again, right? So there's the principality which has its own form of government and uh, its own set of characters. And its own, uh, you know, society structure, societal structure. And mm-hmm. then you'll also have the Federation and their own set of characters and their own set of uh, uh, societal structures. So mm-hmm. it, it is kind of a lot of information to take in, or it was for me. Um, in addition to that, uh, there were certain scenes where, like, even the way that they described the colony, uh like I was in, I think they called it the cylinder. The they just call the colonies sides. Like there are seven colonies, and they're yeah. just called side one, side two, side three, yeah, and see, so forth. Yeah, like, yeah, that was something that I didn't get until just now, until you just said that, because I I remember reading it, but I I was like, uh, I, it, it wasn't something that immediately struck me as having any real meaning. I was just like, okay, yeah. I guess that's just a part of their thing right but yeah it goes even deeper than that because the cylinders the colonies are the the literal colonies are actually shaped like cylinders like the o'neill cylinders 
that uh were proposed back in like i don't know the 60s i think mm-hmm. so they're they're in that kind of form but each each side has multiple cylinders and those individual cylinders tend to have their own names also i think but mm-hmm. just in in general uh most people just refer to them as side one or side seven or whatever the number is mm-hmm. yeah yeah and so yeah so exactly so me not having any background from the shows or from anything really um it was a lot of information to keep track of uh there was at one point they showed a lot of the the they showed an attack from uh the the zakus and the principality like when they were attacking mm-hmm. the colonies and for a brief moment, I was confused because the way that they drew it, it looked like they were outside under an open sky. You know, there were cars and it seemed like there was like air. So I wasn't, I wasn't, I didn't make the connection that they were on these space stations. They were part of the colonies on these space stations, you know? Mm. So it took me a while. Like I, I read it after I had read it for a couple of, of pages um once the attack was happening like there would be sections where the ceiling would explode and you could see the vacuum of space happening but i was like oh that's 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 the moment where it struck me where i was like oh wait are they inside those giant cylinders mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. so yeah i i had to check with drew and i was like am i understanding this right and um yeah like he cleared that up for me but um that, yeah, you you got to trust your instincts, man. You ain't no dummy. You can figure it out. <laughs> <laughs> it just takes time, man. But uh, yeah, uh, like once once I kind of got the rhythm of it and um, it, yeah, it, it's definitely just this thing of familiarity. Once the more I read about it, the more I was like, OK, I'm, I'm kind of figuring out what the rhythm of their world is and uh, what what kind of world building they're establishing, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, the, the colonies, the cylinders themselves, they kind of remind me of the Citadel in Mass Effect. Yeah, another th- another thing that they kind of remind me of is um, in that movie Interstellar. Mm-hmm. At the end, uh, they uh, mankind moves to these colonies, and uh, the way that they portray that is it's basically a giant cylinder as well, but... Uh, there's this particular scene in um, in Interstellar where uh, Matthew McConaughey's character shows up on 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 the space station on the space colony, and he sees kids playing baseball, and they knock the baseball up, and it just flies straight up to the ceiling where like I think there are like more kids up there, so they're just playing like this uh, visually interesting version of like catch with like kids on the roof uh, of this massive uh cylindrical structure you know yeah <laughs> yeah it's a pretty visually interesting uh uh way to 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 play with that you know yeah totally yeah i just looked up the o'neill cylinder on wikipedia if so that's a fascinating entry if anyone's interested in looking at um, probably the direct inspiration for the space colonies in Gundam because yeah that that whole uh, theory 
that uh, it, it's a concept proposed by the American physicist Gerard K. O'Neill in his book, The High Frontier, Human Colonies in Space, published in 1976. So like this... Yeah, it was a whole thing about how these gigantic cylinders that would be five miles in diameter and 20 miles long connected at each end by a rod via a bearing system. And the rotation of that cylinder would be uh, that would provide it uh, with gravity. So it's yeah, it's pretty interesting to see something that like an actual scientist had proposed come out into play in a science fiction story yeah yeah it's uh it's kind of one of those like futurist though Mm -hmm. the way that they kind of take concepts and ideas from well it's it's like a chicken and egg thing i don't know where it starts but you know they they take ideas from science fiction and then try to come up with like a practical real world application for it or it could yeah. be the other way around where, you know, the scientists come up with a conceptual idea and then the the science fiction writers are the one who uh, develop kind of, uh, an imaginative way of yeah. what that would look like in, in terms of practical application. Yeah, yeah. And that, that's pretty much what happened here because this this proposal came out before Gundam came out. So they yeah they had to have gotten the idea from from that book. There's also something uh, fascinating with the cylinders um, because in the beginning of the story, it's clear that not only are these space colonies wonders of human achievement, but they can also be <laughs> turned into weapons of mass destruction. <laughs> It's yeah. There, there's something obvious, but also nonetheless pretty sad or disappointing to to just be presented with that kind of vision. It's like right off in the prologue, right? Like it it the whole book starts with this little prologue that just gives you a picture of the world that they live in, and you get this the the first page is this beautiful shot of a few of the space colonies floating in in space and then the end of the prologue it's a it's a sequence where one of the colonies <laughs> like crashes on earth and and there's uh, something like just the caption the narration next to it says all men grew to fear their own deeds it's like really simple sentence but really poignant next to the imagery as well yeah yeah i mean i guess we can go into that a little bit but Mm -hmm. seeing as how war seems to be a big theme for the for this story like it's definitely a big part of what's what's driving the plot right is the inevitable conflict between these two these two powers right Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. like do you think what do you think the the manga itself has to say on the topic of war? Like, is it, like, does it glorify war? Is it an anti-war? Are there elements of anti-war uh, ideology in it? Um, yeah. Yeah, that's a good question, because I think looking at 
first Gundam as a whole, or even um, the manga, Mobile Suit Gundam, the origin as a whole, I'm pretty sure the takeaway is that war is bad. You know, like that. It, this is not something that is trying to actively encourage people, leaders, nations to go to war. Yeah, it's not a jingoist piece of work. Yeah, that's uh, you know, encouraging the idea of uh, rah rah rah, nation first and kill them all. <laughs> yeah. 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 Although said, I will just, say Oh, go ahead. I was going to say although I will say like there there are a lot of scenes in it which are which could be viewed as being cool action scenes, mm-hmm. right? And exactly. I think those are the more obvious uh takeaways like there there's certainly the louder things about the manga. Mm-hmm. So Although I do think there are things about it that might be anti-war, I I don't know if most people will automatically pick up on that, you know? Yeah, yeah. What I wanted to touch upon was just looking at Volume 1 in and of itself. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I think if if I were to just look at Volume 1, I don't know if I would say that this is a work that's anti-war. I th- I think I would still call it a war story, mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. not necessarily an anti-war comic, you know? Just yeah. Because solely solely looking at Volume One, it it's it portrays war as something that's harrowing and devastating. Yeah. I mean, shoot. Again, going back to the the prologue, the first couple pages of the entire book, it describes a situation where where uh, war breaks out, and in in the first month of war, half of the entire human population is killed. You yeah. know, so yeah. it's, I mean, they they're using colonies as as weapons, and you know, just dropping them on the planet. So there's a lot of examples in the story that just highlight how horrible war is. Mm-hmm. But the, the tension in just about any kind of war comic or not just comic, but war story, whether it's a TV show or a, or a movie, there's there's always that tension between trying to have the message of being against war, but also trying to entertain your audience. And I think I think those things are going to always be at odds because war... I mean, it really shouldn't be entertaining, right? But yeah. You watch fiction to be entertained. Even even fiction that tries to teach us something or, or fiction that has a message, there's still some level of entertainment to it. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. the things that you were describing, like the kind of the, the cool moments, right? Like the cool action moments or just scenes where we're... You know, it could even just be something heroic that you see on the page. Like those are the kind of things where it it doesn't necessarily glorify the war, but there there is something to it where I could I could easily see somebody Yeah. Read that and be like, Yeah, that's cool, you know, like I I wanna Yeah. Like I wanna take up arms and, and do this and that. And it's yeah. it's not just Gundam, you know, it, it's it's like any 
any war story any yeah like take take almost any war movie you know you'll you'll get you'll get the same thing like i don't think there are too many movies that are straight up pro-war you know unless you're just watching like some kind of propaganda or something but like Mm -hmm. in modern times i feel like well maybe there are some movies that are pro-war i can't really think of any can you uh usually it's stuff about the horrors of war and and maybe the way they depict it is is still horrible but there's always like you said gonna be cool moments to you know engage the audience and and exactly it's it's not something where you can really separate the two things where i mean i mean it's i guess that's especially in fiction yeah that's the weird duality of it right is that you're it's like you said you're trying to be ad uh entertaining but at the same time uh that that sense of entertainment also comes at the expense of the i guess the the moral message of it right yeah um and not everyone is always going to gravitate to 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 the moral uh element of it or people gravitate towards the explosions and the gunfights exactly exactly right or if there is a a moral takeaway it's well sometimes you have to kill people in order to do what's right that's what's heroic and i'm not saying that you know there aren't necessary evils under circumstances like that but i don't know like that that shouldn't be the takeaway right it's like exactly like someone had to do something that they had to but wouldn't we have been better off if no one had to do any of those things yeah yeah exactly exactly (laughs) yeah yeah it's it's a really difficult line to walk in fiction i think if if it's a story that's um like a memoir or some kind of nonfiction account of war. Yeah. I think that can still at least be presented in a way where it it doesn't really glorify yeah, the horrors of war or anything. It but yeah. Even then it it's it's still kind of difficult, especially if if it's a movie, you know, like we always see movies that are based on real events or real yeah. wars and and those tend to be done in this exciting fashion you know even yeah. even if they m- might show dead bodies or or yeah. the things that that make war awful and yeah want to discourage people from you know being all rah-rah like there's still that sense of or i guess the obligation to entertain the audience but yeah. if, i think if you're reading reading a, a biography or an autobiography or a memoir where somebody's describing their horrible experience or whatever yeah you know like that i think that that's different you know like that i don't think the stuff that we said really applies to to things like that yeah it it just made me think of this one um like this one quote um it was a quote from like william william sherman who who fought in the civil war and uh 
he was talking about he was talking about the Civil War prior to his entering of it as as one of the generals, and he was saying he was talking about war and uh, you know how the South was rebelling, and basically he was the 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 short version or the the paraphrase of the quote was if they want war then we should try to make it quick and we should also try to make it so devastating as to like remind people how awful it is that mm-hmm. so that they'll never want to like make war again right mm-hmm. but the funny thing about it is if you apply that to like a story and if you really stop and think about it where it's like well i want to show the horrors of war in a story in order to um, communicate that, again, this is something that's so awful that we really should be avoiding it and not wanting to have anything to do with it. And hopefully this is a lesson that comes to future generations that these things are awful. Uh, Like the funny thing is even, even under those circumstances where you try to tell the, like the rawest, realist, most devastating version of that story, you'll still get people who are like, man, that was cool. <laughs> you know? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so like people who refuse to accept like what the point of it was and will just still consume it for, um, the entertainment. Yeah. For, for whatever bloodlust or entertainment value that they get out of it, because, that's more valuable to them than, you know, the mm-hmm. idea that this is terrible. Yeah. 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 What are some other war comics that you can think of that might be a point of comparison to the origin? Oof. And it, it's that's... not necessarily something that has to be science fiction, but I'm just thinking of war comics in general oh man uh i that's kind of tough i can't really think of anything that i would really compare uh, especially not a one one to one comparison to something like uh gundam mm-hmm. uh i mean the first thing that probably came to mind was maybe some of the old uh ec war comics yeah um, like I think those are pretty pretty interesting as a counterpoint because at least the best of those stories those tend to go out of their way not to glorify war too right like they they tend to be like yeah exactly about the evils of war yeah and a lot of the times it's about people just pretty much being like messed up by what they're what they've been forced to do you know. Yeah. 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 Yeah, that, that's that's uh an interesting thought to bring up just because I would have guessed like the easy answer to American war comic or a, a North American war comic would be something like uh you know those old jo- Joe Kubert comics from the 60s or 70s mm, like mm. Sergeant Rock or something or Yeah. Or, uh, I don't know, Enemy Ace or what have you. Yeah. I mean, yeah, and Garth Ennis has written a bunch of war comics, too. Like, there, I guess the different eras of of when these stories were in have they pretty tend to different alter feelings. their perception of them. Yeah. 
Yeah, like if if I think about something like uh, an old issue of like Nick Fury or Sergeant Fury and his Howling Commandos. Yeah. Like, I can look at an issue of that and think like I don't think that would strike me as something that was like blatantly anti-war. It would just be yeah. like a war comic, you know? Like it's yeah. it's about like this uh soldier Big guys who, win. Yeah, yeah, you know, they're they're shooting up Nazis or whatever and Yeah. uh Sure, there's danger, but you know the good guys win, like you said. And and yeah. uh, when you look at a Garth Ennis comic where he he writes something like a World War II story, like that, those tend to be they're they're usually not like just straight up about battles, but yeah. they're really about the the human cost, you know, like not just the physical cost, but like the psychological cost on yeah. the people who live. If anyone survives, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I I just thought of something. I, I think I know what the most obvious comparison for me would be. Um, and it's not a comic, but uh, I think Ender's Game by Orson Scott Card would probably mm-hmm. be the thing that comes to mind if I was to compare this. Mm-hmm. Um, you mentioned earlier that there was a bit of dialogue at the beginning of this that talks about how... Um, at the start of the war, like very early on because of everything that happens, what ends up happening is that the human race is reduced by 50% just from all of the One terrible month things. of fighting. Yeah, exactly, which is a devastating thought, even though we don't, uh, we don't see like the piles of bodies, but just, just even commuting, communicating that through the text is, should be should be bothersome enough on its own, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I, I remember one of the things that I noticed uh, when I was reading this comic was just how how young so many of the, the cast members were. And yeah, uh, like really early on, what ends up happening is the the leadership ends up being incapacitated and like this junior officer ends up taking control of the ship right mm-hmm. and and we mentioned early that the 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 person running the Gundam he's just a 15 year old kid yeah yeah and, and then and the guy that ends up becoming the captain because the real captain got hurt yeah um he's only like 19 years old i i think they they actually say it in in the story i think he's he's like 19 years old so he's not much older than amuro yeah yeah that's a bright right yeah the, exactly Lieutenant bright no great bright yeah mm-hmm Mm-hmm. And then what ends up happening is because of the attack from uh, the principality, like a lot of the officers get injured. So they start taking in recruits from the civilian population. So you've just got a bunch of like young, young looking people just, uh, you know, being put into positions where they're going to have to make decisions, life and death decisions for like hundreds of thousands of people i imagine if not more mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. um that yeah so you know i do think that that was something where maybe on the on the face of it it's not a blatant anti-war sort of uh uh element or 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 detail but at the same time it, there's something crazy about that idea where like they've as a society have just fought to such a crazy degree 
where all the all the older people have essentially died off or are incapable of being involved in this and now all the the only people that are able to lead the war are just kids teenagers you know yeah <laughs> and on top yeah. of that i noticed that in the scenes when the refugees the colonists are trying to flee because the the fighting breaks out in the colony between the the Zeon and the Federation forces. And then like early on in the book, you have Fraubo and her family are there with a bunch of the other uh, citizens in the, in the colony. And they're just trying to run like they, their shelter is compromised. So they, they got to run somewhere. And uh, she sees it's that scene where she sees Amaro like on the other side, like down this hill from the highway where there are, where all the refugees are running. And she, she jumps off the highway to to go see Amaro and it's kind of fortunate for her because like right after she jumps off the highway and you know goes down to see him an explosion hits that whole group of people and, yeah. and kills them all but i i did notice like during the scenes when those refugees were alive and even the the refugees that end up surviving and making it onto the ship like most of those people are just either really old people or really little kids. Yeah. Yeah. It's like there, there aren't really any, you don't really see any able-bodied like 20 year olds, like the people that you would expect to be actual soldiers because presumably they're already serving or something, you know, like it's just old people and, and children. So now you have these teenagers because they're just a little bit older or at least old enough to, i suppose like man a gun turret or or whatever it is it's it's like man like i guess that's another thing about gundam you do have to suspend some disbelief because everybody is so young and you have uh a hero a a protagonist who starts off as this in a way he's kind of like this parody of otaku right like he just starts off as this guy who yeah. so oblivious to the world and lives like a slob mm-hmm, that mm-hmm. his his friend um is the one who like brings him food and tries to make sure he takes a shower and stuff yeah he's just a dude that's trapped on his computer like all day and all night yeah 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 and and yet so, we still have to accept that somehow he's the one who is able to uh pilot this advanced mobile suit and even it's kind of the otaku fantasy right <laughs> it, it it really kind of is man it it I, I i can definitely see somebody reading this and just being like inspired by it to see that yeah. you know this nerdy kid gets to be a hero it pays and, off for him <laughs> yeah yeah exactly yeah. but but on top of that you have the whole thing where after the battle is over and they make it onto the ship and they're heading towards towards uh luna 2 like that would you would think that would be the time when they can settle things down and 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 uh you know they wouldn't need Amaro to to be the pilot because they're going to a, an actual federation base where you would think they could get a new pilot there like somebody who's actually a trained soldier to to be the pilot but they just end up saying oh yeah he can he can keep on piloting it <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's that's a pretty huge flight of fancy right there. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but it's that's something where your suspension of disbelief 
definitely has to take uh, kick in in order for you to like continue uh accepting the premise of the story at all right yeah exactly <laughs> exactly it, it wasn't something that that bothered me it's obviously not something that breaks my ability to enjoy the story but it is something that i have to acknowledge and yeah and just yeah. you know there's there's no real way to to ignore that yeah it, it could also just be i think there could be a couple reasons for that like first of all just the the basic reason might be unsatisfying but i think it could just be an anime trope where a lot of times you have main characters that are just teenagers because you want to attract little kids to watch your show so kids are more likely to be interested if they see a kid as the main character you know yeah kids don't fantasize about adults yeah (laughs) yeah i mean if i were a kid i would have been disappointed to learn that i grew up into who i am now oof <laughs> Oof. Okay. <laughs> I would have been like, man, why can't I be a mobile suit pilot? <laughs> when I was a kid, I thought I was gonna grow up to be Snake Eyes. <laughs> nope. I thought I was at least gonna be a a, a jet fighter pilot in the Air Force. <laughs> oh man. But the other reason, I think it's a story decision that still works within the framework of the story is because it's it's still very much a, a tale about making way for a new generation. Mm. A big part of the story revolves around how these adults generally don't know anything. They're They're not looking after people's best interests and you see that early on in a scene um when amuro meets his father for the first time because his father is the chief engineer or designer of the gundam you you see him and a couple of other federation people trying to figure out how to transport the gundam to to white base and amuro is running and he sees his father and his father is just completely absorbed in his mission and all of the the refugees they don't really like factor Matter. into his yeah yeah and and like i think amuro i think there's even a line where amuro says are is this machine even more important than all these people's lives yeah yeah and his dad doesn't really you know have much of an answer for for that not directly at least and then you see scenes later on in the story where they when they finally make uh when they finally arrive at the base on Luna 2 and you see these higher up uh I think one of them is an admiral and you just see these these officers these federation officers they're just completely clueless as to the real dangers that are happening you know they don't care about what happened in the battle and they don't care about the people really what they do care about is making sure that the Gundam makes it to earth. Yeah. It brings up another thought that I had, which was it's, it's kind of a big, big thought. Uh, so, so I might, you know, it's going to take some talking on my part, but, um, that's what we're here for, baby. (laughs) 
okay, so if we take into account like Japanese history in the like post World War II era, like mm-hmm. a lot of their uh storytell storytelling developed around you know, I like I can't confirm that this is the case, but I imagine that if people borrow things from life, uh then you know, having come out of World War Two and just how much of their society was affected by everything that went on in that era. Um mm-hmm. I like we see this time and time again with uh these military uh stories in anime where a lot of the elements tend to revolve around the fact that you have things like like stories that revolve around like the horrors of war and you know like it i'm i'm pretty sure it was well documented that even by the end of uh towards the end of world war 2 like they were just using older civilians and children uh just to fill out their ranks you know and you know it, after everything that had gone on i'm i'm sure there was a lot of issues with just failure a, a loss of faith in the government and the leadership mm-hmm. because they spent so much of their time and energy just uh towing the line for what they considered the greater good and just yeah. how your average person ended up paying the price for that you know yeah um, I, I think that's absolutely at play here yeah because tomino himself he was a a little child um by the end of the war um yeah i just i just looked up his uh wikipedia page and, and tomino he was born in 41 so you know he must have been like around four or five yeah when, when everything ended he grew up in a world where they were in the middle of the reconstruction essentially mm-hmm. yeah you know and and yaz is only a few years younger than him he, he's like six years younger than tomino but I, I'm pretty sure, I'm pretty confident that, uh, you know, just growing up in that post World War II era, really it affected them, a lot of their worldview. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like immensely. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Like there's there's that whole sense of not being able to trust your military or even political leaders. You know, they're the, they're the ones who are making the dumb decisions that that uh, harm Got you to where you were. Yeah, yeah they, they're you know they're they're harming the regular people. Yeah. So you can't you can't trust these people in power. It's uh you know it, I guess it if you if you think back to World War II history, it really goes to the emperor. You know I mean like yeah. he was he was the one that he was willing everybody... to sacrifice everyone. Yeah. <laughs> basically. Yeah. Basically. <laughs> I mean, it, it's. Yeah, I mean that that's a whole bunch of stuff that could be discussed in and of itself. Yeah. You know, the whole thing whether like how responsible was the emperor or was he a figurehead, you know, like how come how come after the war he wasn't executed for for war crimes or whatever. He he was able to just continue on living. Yeah. But it, still the just the leaders of of Japan at the time with the common people you know can't can't imagine that they were too pleased with 
with the decision to try and go down fighting to the very last person, you know? Yeah. 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 Absolutely. And like, and like you said, there there is actually a factual documentation of children being forced to fight. Like if you look at the waning days of of the war and stuff that was going on in Okinawa, like they yeah. were they were getting like I think preteen kids, like like I'm talking like eight or ten year olds to to you know fight alongside soldiers just to the death just because yeah. they weren't they didn't want to surrender. Yeah. Like there were things where they didn't even have weapons, so they would just give people grenades and just tell them to, you know, walk up to American soldiers and pretend that they were surrendering or or and just set the grenades off, you know? Like mm-hmm. suicide bombers. Mm-hmm. Um it reminded me of this other scene uh from from the manga where at one point uh the zaku leader i forget what what his name was the char. the one char right char so at one, like charlene but char <laughs> oh okay so at one point uh they've had uh several exchanges between the principality and the federation and you know it's it's this ongoing back and forth between the two forces and uh, they've both given each other like the fair their fair share of licks, mm-hmm. and at one point, what ends up happening is the the principality is weakened, and as far as we can tell, they're 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 kind of on their last legs. But what ends up happening is Char Char and a bunch of the and a bunch of a, a few of his men decide to slip out of their ship. And the the scene that they draw is them floating in space, and they're hugging this. I I think it's like an explosive or some sort of torpedo or something like that, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So instead of like a frontal assault, they're they're essentially uh, using this. Actually, it might be a propulsion device to like sneak up to to the larger vessel unseen, right? Yeah. And that reminded me of this uh, history video that I watched where they were talking about, like, some of the inventions that they came up with towards the end of the war as they were running out of resources. And I think they developed, like, some uh, literal... In the same way that kamikaze pilots were, um, you know, used as human uh, guided missiles in the air, they also developed uh, these underwater torpedoes and and bombs that uh soldiers would cling to to float up to Hmm. to american naval vessels and like either detonate or uh you know use to mess up the ship somehow but yeah that design was uh was something that jumped out at, at me as as something um oddly familiar from from history you know yeah, totally. I think that's one of the nice elements about Gundam is, is how it does take these kind of realistic elements of warfare and just presents them in this fantastical manner. You know, instead of being yeah. underwater, they're just in outer space. But yeah. it, it's still like I don't I don't know if like scientifically how how possible that is, but just as a story. Again, again, yeah. if we're just looking at this as entertainment, that 
that is cool, you know? Yeah, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah, were there, did you have any particular favorite moments, or was there anything, uh, any scenes that really resonated with you in this first volume, Drew? Uh, Yeah, I think there were quite a few, actually. Like, one of the first ones that really resonated was the scene I just mentioned uh, a little while ago when when Fraubo uh, narrowly escapes death, but yeah, you know, all of her 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 mother and her her grandfather are caught in the blast. That that is a pretty striking scene, I think. I actually, after reading Volume One, I, I went back online to watch Episode One. It's on the whole series is on Crunchyroll. If if anyone's interested in watching the original series, but I watched the first episode of the series for the first time in a long time. Mm. And yeah, this scene is in the anime. And it, it's a it's a powerful scene in the, in the anime when when you can hear the voice acting and stuff. But the I feel like the way that it's presented in the comic in for so, for whatever reason, man, like I felt like that was more powerful to me just because the way that Yaz draws it where uh, I'm looking at uh, page 98 right now. Like that's the, the page where, where she she leaves her family and she's running towards Amaro. And then on page 99, you see this, you see the explosion happen right behind her, and it's basically a slow motion shot of her body getting thrown by the force, and she just flies closer and closer to the camera. And then when you get to the next page, Amaro is just panicked over her and he's trying to see if she's okay and everything then they both look behind them or they look behind her and they see the rubble and and all these bodies and i noticed that in the in the anime like there's a bunch of bodies like a lot more bodies there and uh it kind of stands out because in the cart in the anime the everybody's got like different colored clothes so they all they all kind of jump out, but reading the manga version in black and white, the the people's bodies kind of blend into the ground. You know, they're they're not colored differently or anything, but they just kind of blend into the into the crater of the blast. And you see, you see like bits of clothing and a and a shoe. Yeah, it's it's like it it's it just, just looks more chaotic. Yeah, it's a total yeah. mess. And and then just the way that uh, Yasuhiko draws Frau, uh, her face, and, like, you know, she's just, like, in shock and, and crying and everything. She's devastated by this whole thing. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. then and then Amro's face, where he's he's shocked, too. He doesn't, there isn't, for a while, he, he doesn't know what to say. He just, he's just staring at her while, while his friend is wailing over her mother's dead body. Yeah. Like, that... That to me, like that whole sequence where he he kind of like takes a hold of her and, and tells her to to run for her life. Like I, I thought that was a really well done scene, man. And and how that whole chapter ends, where um, he tells her to run and and he starts to see her make her way to to the ship. Uh, he he's he gets you know the sense of relief, but then he looks over to to the side and he sees the Gundam 
kind of lying sideways on on the truck bed and and then he sees a, a zaku coming over the ridge like just the the way that chapter ends on page 108 where it ends with this panel of him standing amidst the rubble and these dead bodies looking up at the at the zaku that's that's some good storytelling like it's it's not there aren't any words on that page like it it's like a two-page sequence with no words but i feel like it's easy to just get absorbed in in reading the story through the images you know like you can you can guess at his emotions and and what's going on in his mind just by just by the way that it's framed and and by the way that his expression is drawn the the posture in the final panel where he's got his fists clenched and this determined look it's man to me that that's some exquisite storytelling mm-hmm. yeah i think that scene in particular that you described uh with frau and the death of her family mm-hmm. uh that that has to be the scene that sticks out for me as well um it's there's there's a bunch of I don't know how else to describe it, but cool action scenes throughout the book, <laughs> you know, um, there's, there's a lot of it. There's a lot of battle scenes where you see uh, the Gundams and there's a lot of um, just battles with soldiers or ship battles like it. It makes up a, a, a majority stake of the book, but that one particular scene was probably the brunt of just the the emotional content of this first volume because yeah they it's like you said they spent a couple of pages uh uh showing that explosion happen and and just the few panels in which you're just watching frau like deal with the the realization that her family mm-hmm. is dead mm-hmm. like she just looks messed up man yeah yeah, it's it's pretty it's a pretty heart wrenching scene. Yeah, yeah, but yeah. Yeah, there are there are quite a f- few scenes where where people die, but that was probably the one where that human cost was really emotional. You know. Yeah, it's, it's the scene where because we've already gotten to know Frau a little bit, you just kind of you can't help but feel a little something seeing her anguish yeah i kind of wanted to go into the 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 fact that i mentioned that there are a lot of um battle scenes and the the interesting thing about this first volume was it it's not really clear what the passage of time is it it feels like it's this one incident that kicks it off and Mm -hmm. Uh, there's this continuous back and forth between the Principality and the Federation. Um, you know, just them taking taking turns at, like, getting at each other, essentially, right? Mm-hmm. And it just... It, it did jump out at me in this first volume how... It feels like... it Like, it's a, it's a it's obviously a thick book. But it feels like there isn't a lot going on in the sense that 
like you don't feel like there's a huge passage of time, but there's a lot going on in 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 terms of how detailed they are showing all of these exchanges in this yeah. short period of time, you know? Yeah, it, it, it feels like like at least a third of the book takes place over the course of a single day or something. Yeah, exactly, whole, right? Like Amro wakes up and it's it's like a normal day, but it just happens to be the day when these Zakus infiltrate the colony and then this yeah. whole battle happens and they have to make it to the ship. And, and then like, they have like the, several back and forths. Yeah. Yeah. And then I th- I think I think by the time they uh travel to Luna 2, I think that gives you a sense of like some time passing, like even if it's just like another day or two, at, and then they spend a little bit of time at Luna too. But yeah, you're right that a, a lot of stuff happens within a short span of time. Like yeah. so many people get killed in the beginning. Everybody's yeah. in a panic. Uh, Amuro discovers the Gundam. A bunch of his friends from the colony end up, you know, finding roles on the ship, mm-hmm. and it's. They they all deal with live combat for the first time, and it it's it's a lot to happen in in one day, and it's yeah just covered it in a couple hundred pages basically. Yeah, yeah. It kind of reminds me of uh, how sometimes animes do this, where uh, you know, in order to draw draw it out, because you know. The, the the most obvious example that I can think of is like there there are instances where the anime is trying to catch up with uh the manga that's coming out mm-hmm. so they they kind of have to uh delay it a little bit so they add these like filler kind of episodes mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. um so like what they do is they 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 put in a lot of these extra details like really do painstaking detail to fill in a lot of these moments. But, um, yeah, I don't, I don't mean that in like a bad way, uh, in this case, cause the details that they put in are, they're like beautifully done, you know? Yeah. And, uh, yeah, like the, the action sequences like go on for several pages, but they're just like, just gorgeous to look at and just cool. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh. There are a couple of other moments that I I really liked here too. Um one of them is our introduction to Sela. She's the girl that uh was driving the ambulance with Frau and they were picking up um any other survivors who were trying to make it to the ship. Mm-hmm. And there's that scene where when she's with Frau, uh, like they they see this car that has stopped, and the people in that car are like calling for help, but in reality they're just trying to, um, you know, take advantage of a good Samaritan. Yeah, yeah, I remember that scene. Yeah, and and Sela is the one who who pulls a gun out on these guys and tells them to to back off like that that was a moment that kind of jumps out just as a way of introducing the character like yeah i mean that, that's not her first appearance in the comic like you see her in a few scenes leading up to that but it's it's still 
part of that first impression and i think i think it's a good one and like throughout the rest of the story you can tell that she's someone who's who's really capable and it's kind of unusual um, or unexpected i guess because so many of the other people in the colony they're just in a panic but she's just got this level-headed coolness about her where she's she's not afraid to to fire a pistol you know and she's the one who who is willing to uh you know take on take on the role of the communications officer on the bridge and you know just really contribute and and do something other than just stand around and yeah hope for the best she's a real uh take charge kind of person mm-hmm. yeah for sure like another scene that I was thinking of was at one point she engages Char and, mm-hmm. uh, you know, he even acknowledges at that point, like uh, he he's on the verge of like destroying the Gundam. Right. And, you know, he and his small crew have uh, incapacitated most of the people within the area. But she's she's one of the few people that's left standing and she totally holds him off, and mm-hmm. even he acknowledges that she's just something different, something she's someone capable and almost intimidating, you know? Yeah, yeah, exactly. I'm looking at that scene right now, and and what he says when uh, she's sticking him up, he says, "Valor to put an officer to shame." <laughs> yeah, yeah, but it, right. it's also funny because he says it while he's smirking too. <laughs> <laughs> That that's kind of one of those anime tropes where where the guy is like just so cool under pressure. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Char is is one of the most fascinating characters I think, and he's he's the one that actually became the iconic character of of First Gundam. Like you would think that it's Amuro, but actually Char is more popular than Amuro. Yeah, I I mean it doesn't hurt him that. <sighs> He wears this like mask and this outfit that just makes him stick out compared mm-hmm. to everybody else cuz nobody else wears a mask in this thing, you mm-hmm. know? Yeah. Um, but but yeah, he's he's just this very like charismatic Machiavellian type of character, you know? Um and even though he's the antagonist of the story there there is something about him that I, I guess it's that whole thing where you for any good story you want the villain to be someone that you uh that you like on some level right like mm-hmm. i don't know if like is the right word but just so a villain like yeah you can't have your heroes go up against a lame villain. Yeah. Right? Yeah. He, he, you know? It's kind of like Darth Vader in the Star Wars movies. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. There's... Uh, yeah, again, I don't know if liking is... Or or likability is the word I'm looking for, but there's got to be something about him that makes him a compelling villain, right? Mm-hmm. And, and they pulled it off with Char. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, we're just getting the tip of the iceberg right now. I'm 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 kind of envious of you because this is your first time consuming this story, so there's probably going to be things that that uh you'll get to see develop 
uh-huh. without having any preconceptions. Right. Yeah. Um yeah, I mean just based on this first volume so far, I I'm I'm confident that this is going to be something that I'm going to continue to read and I and I'm going to find pretty pretty engaging stuff, you know? Yeah, so, man, totally. Like, what I've read so far is if it's any indicator, it's it's a good sign of uh what's to come, you know? Yeah. For sure. Yeah. I'm glad. Yeah. Uh, I'm also curious, man, but uh you mentioned Shar's mask. Did you think it was strange that he's like the one guy that has a mask or did you like one did it were you wondering like why is this guy wearing a mask? <laughs> uh So Okay, so maybe Okay, let me put it this way. Like I I I I was aware that there was something about that that was pretty out of place. Like mm-hmm. there was no real explanation as to why he's the one guy that wears a mask. You know? Yeah. Um uh, maybe that's something they'll reveal for later. Uh it wasn't necessarily something where having read it I was like I need an answer for this right now. Yeah. Um I I think I think it is it's also an anime trope that even though I'm not familiar with Gundam, I am familiar with that as uh a trope. Mm-hmm. Uh it's it's kind of the idea of having one mystery character, right? Someone like a tuxedo mask or <laughs> um <laughs> I'll go to like Power Rangers as another example, how you always have like how like the Green Ranger was the one guy that was kind of uh an unknown quantity, you know, uh-huh. it's, it's just their way of building, building up a sense of, uh, mystery and intrigue. So, uh, it, it wasn't something that I was, that was so unfamiliar to me or so bizarre to me that I was like, ah, oh, that doesn't make any sense, you know? Uh, cause again, e- even though I haven't read a lot of Gundam, I, I, at this point in my life, I, I, I have read enough manga an anime where that particular trope is not so bizarre for me, you know? Yeah, yeah. Makes sense. Makes sense. Yeah. You did watch Mobile Suit Gundam Iron-Blooded Orphans, and that's a Gundam story that is its own universe, its own continuity. It's not set in the same timeline or dimension as this story mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but and oddly enough there was a guy with a mask in that too <laughs> yeah 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 i was just gonna point that out because Shar is, is one of those characters that had such a big impact on the mythos that almost every single other gundam even the ones that are especially the ones that are set in these alternate universes they all kind of tend to have their own version of him somehow you know yeah well, there's always yeah. a blonde guy with a mask. Yeah, once you've hit on like a formula that that works, it's hard not to not to keep going back to it, right? Mm-hmm. Espe- yeah. Especially once it becomes a staple of the series. Yeah, you know? and especially when 
it's something that is just like he was the most popular character basically like he like they would do polls in japan uh-huh, and uh-huh. and he would always outrank amuro in terms of popularity for some reason people just gravitated towards him yeah well i'm, I'm not really sure why that is but I, I do think he's super fascinating well i mean he is pretty cool like there there's no like real other way to describe it right it's like charming yeah, he's a very like charming dude. He's uh he's good looking. He's uh he's it, it always feels like he has just the exact right thing to say. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. Uh he doesn't he's unflappable. Ever, yeah, exactly. He it's not like he ever comes off like a dork or a doofus or, you know. Yeah, it's like yeah. even even when the Federation manages to like pull one away from him, he never he never makes it feel like he just lost the battle, you know? It just feels like, okay, I've got to resupply and get more yeah. get more material so I can continue my mission. Yeah, right. Like, there's well, no sense of panic. You you get yeah. the sense that out of all the all like compared to the Federation officers, like Shar is he just comes off as way more competent. Yeah. Yeah. It it just feels like most other villains, your most typical villains would be like, I'll get you next time. You know? <laughs> that's yeah. that's what you're more accustomed to seeing from like your standard villains. But yeah. uh the way he, that he's played off, it's just it's just he's just cool under pressure, you know? Mm-hmm. So I don't know. Uh like I don't know anything about him. So I wonder if if at some point in the story he has some sort of turn and he becomes kind of more of an anti-hero as opposed to a villain or something along those lines. Um, well, yeah, I'm not gonna spoil anything for you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I wasn't I wasn't looking for a spoiler, but I was just <laughs> I was musing at, yeah. at the idea of so there. Yeah, I especially knowing now, um, you know, what you said about how how popular he was. I I kind of wonder at the time. Uh, well, I mean, you mentioned that the show wasn't actually popular when it was coming out, right? Right. It wasn't until the movies came out that it finally exploded. I mean, don't get me wrong. When the show was airing, it it had a, a rabid fan base, but it just wasn't it wasn't popular to the point where uh, you know, at that point, they wouldn't like Tomino and and Yaz probably didn't imagine that this thing would still have legs forty something years later. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay, so that being the case, it's it's not likely that uh, uh, any fan reactions would force them to change elements within the story, right? Probably not. If anything, it would just be the the toy sponsors. Right, right, right. Yeah. And they had they had they actually had more of an impact on the mechanical designs that you see. I don't I don't think they really affected the story too much. Mm. I'm pretty sure I'm pretty sure uh, Tomino was able to do the story that he generally wanted to do. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, yeah, actually, that that brings up uh, another point I f- I didn't mention earlier about the 
mecha designs, but because of the toy company, they they wanted um, you know really toyetic products to to sell, and mm-hmm. that's why uh, you have the Gundam, which is so symmetrical and it's in these bright colors. It it doesn't really like you see it on the cover, even though the most of the book is in black and white and you see the Gundam in a couple of other in some of the color pages but the color scheme is just white blue red and some yellow trim yeah you know it's not it doesn't really look like a military oriented color scheme whereas the Zaku's they're painted like this olive green or you know kind of this more like a color that you would expect uh, a tank. It looked like colored. tanks. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. exactly. And and they're not symmetrical either. Um, you know, they've got a shield on the right side of their arm and the spiked shoulder pad on the left shoulder, and they have a a mono eye that's basically become this iconic symbol of the Zeon forces. And I I think that's because like there's been a lot written about it, but. Uh, the mecha designer Kunio Okawara, when they were designing, when he was designing the the robots in this, basically the the mandate was to really focus on making marketable toys. So mm-hmm. all the the thinking was that kids would only want to buy the the heroes robots. You know, they only want to buy the good guy toys. So you got to make sure that white base has blue and white colors so it's bright you got to make sure that the gundam has bright colors and you know there's like really specific um things that they wanted those to have so like a lot more iterations based on the feedback of people that probably didn't really need to give them any feedback in terms of artistic creativity so when it came to designing the the Xeon mobile suits, he had carte blanche to do whatever he wanted, basically. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like they they didn't think that kids would want to buy the bad guys' toys. So, um, I think most people generally agree that the Xeon mobile suits tend to look a lot cooler than the Federation mobile suits. <laughs> <laughs> do they? Like I'm, even even today, I, I'm pretty sure that that uh. The Xeon mobile suits, like if you can, if you look at some of the other Federation suits in this volume, like the the gun cannon, you know, the one that has the two shoulder cannons, yeah, or the gun tank, like the the that one looks just flat out silly, you know, like mm. the gun tank looks dumb, and then the gun cannon, that's a little more acceptable, but as a as a mecha fanatic, I would definitely say that the Zaku looks way cooler than the federation mobile suits Hmm. okay and i'm pretty sure that the model kit sales back that up too like they're they're constantly uh doing new versions of of zaku's like that's a you know that it's just a timeless classic uh design yeah 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 huh I didn't like I I do think the Zaku's look cool but I I, I never realized that they were that like, cool more popular <laughs> more popular than the actual Gundam design, you know? Yeah. 
I don't I guess... know if they're more popular than the actual Gundam, but they're they're more popular than the other Federation mobile suits. Mm. Mm. Okay, okay. Okay, that's okay, that's a uh I guess that's a important clarification then. Yeah. 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 Later on, I think you'll see more uh variations of the Federation's mobile suits and you'll see more you'll see different uh Xeon mobile suits. I think it's pretty f- fair to say that the Xeon ones look a little bit less generic than the Federation ones. Mm. I, I always kind of felt like the Federation suits look kind of uh milk toast, you know, like they're just kind of like the generic if you if you asked a kid to design a generic looking good guy robot, that's kind of what they would look like. <laughs> <laughs> it is a very like heroic, noble looking uh uh I guess unit. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know. But yeah, even like the color scheme, something quite as bright as that. It's almost a walking banner. Yeah, exactly. It's really really attention grabbing you know you're fighting in in the depths of space and why do you why do you want to draw more attention to yourself i think because i like those gun cannons i think are actually red um in the anime so it's like if you're you're fighting in the depths of space and somebody's trying to track you and you're just this bright colored red <laughs> that, that, that just sounds like a bad idea man <laughs> so i'm curious um i didn't have a chance to read it but at the end of the book you said that there was a like an essay that was written is that right yeah there's a couple actually there's a an essay from hideyaki ano there's Mm -hmm. a a letter or a, a Another afterword from the guy who basically was the uh, CEO and president of the magazine that published the manga during its serialization in Japan. And there's a longer essay by this guy named Ryusuke Hikawa, who was, I guess he's a a notable anime critic in Japan. Mm, mm. Did you uh, learn anything, or were there any details that were of interest? I think with Anno's piece, it, it's kind of one of those pieces where, in a way, it's like an old man looking down at the stuff that kids like today and wondering why they don't like the stuff that he liked when he was a kid. Mm. But he he's... He's definitely effusive and full of praise for for Gundam the Origin because he was such a big f- fan of the original Gundam, a first Gundam. It, mm. And I think he's he just kind of expresses like I guess gratitude that Yasuhiko had a chance of reviving Gundam as a tale and it's tail with a capital T, you know, like <laughs> as opposed to just having uh, a piece of fiction that's designed to sell model kits and just provide 
you know, mindless entertainment. Like he views this as something that has that has meaning and it's a mythology. It has, yeah, exactly, exactly. It's it's something that has that has heart and uh you know, it's it's not anything I can disagree with at all. It's 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 just a, a heartfelt little piece. Um the the essay from the the anime critic Hikawa, that one's interesting too, I think. It he talks a bit about some of the the differences between the book and the anime. And one of the things that he specifically highlights is the greater attention to to real to to world building and how it enhances his appreciation and enjoyment of the story because if yeah if if you do watch the anime whether whether you watch the tv series or the movie compilations this the manga definitely gives you a, a deeper sense of of like this entire lore that doesn't need to be explained but you know it's just kind of lurking beneath the surface and it's mm-hmm. there if you want to think about it mm-hmm I, th- I think the the show, the anime, is a little bit more uh, straightforward, where you don't really get a whole lot of. I, I mean, you get some elements of things that that uh, you know occur that you don't see, like just the idea that the world that you're watching is bigger than just what's on screen, and in fact, there's stuff that's going on that you don't see, and you just kind of. Um, you know, you just roll with it because they inhabit a world where things happen, even if if you, if they don't, if the characters you're watching don't see them. Mm-hmm. But I feel like in in this one, in in the book, uh, you know, you you get it's more explicit, I guess. And and like a good example of it that he points out is um, in the beginning of the story, there's there's a, you notice there's another Gundam that shows up at the end of the first chapter, right? Like, and it's a Gundam that has a different shaped head, mm-hmm. or like mm-hmm. the 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 face is different. And if you pay attention to the little details on the, I'm looking at page 48 right now, but that Gundam has the designation RX 78-01, mm. and Amuro's Gundam is RX 78-02. Oh. So in in the in the anime you don't actually see the zero one like that whole sequence is is not in the original TV series. Huh. But the way that Yaz presents it in the book, it it actually makes it feel like okay, there's there's actually like test pilots and other prototypes, you know, like there's the 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 Gundam development project is bigger than just this one unit. That Amro right, uses, right. but there there was another one too. So okay. you know that that's the kind of um, additional world building that he inserts into the manga version that's not mm. in the in the anime. And I think I think it works. You know, like yeah, it it does make the story take longer. Like it it's uh like the first episode is covered in like a couple hundred pages here, you know, like it, it's kind of weird if you think about it. Cause like usually you'd, you'd expect, um, 
the anime to cover a lot uh a lot more but the manga is the the version that actually decompresses things and and takes on more material mm, mm. Hmm. Uh, yeah that's uh that's an interesting thing that you brought up like not having watched the anime ever like i feel like i i should have uh checked out at least one episode just to compare notes you know yeah i i think it's worth watching even just one episode at least at the very least you can get a sense of like how things look in motion and like what color things are supposed to be yeah um I- I will and, say that, and also the voice acting is really well done. Yeah. I was going to say I will say that there are part portions of the, of the book where they uh colored them in. Mm-hmm. Uh It's beautiful coloring. I, yeah, I I don't know necessarily why they do that. <laughs> you know why some pages are colored and then the majority of the book is in black and white, but I I will say being able to see it in color is pretty nice. Um there are yeah. some things that are abundantly clear when you see it in color, like things yeah. that I I hadn't thought about in um, seeing it in black and white. But totally, and yeah. and the reason why some pages are in color is because in in Japan when they serialize when they serialize manga, uh, sometimes the magazine that the manga runs in will actually get a chance to have a few color pages and it's really just kind of a chance for the artist to to show off and it brings more attention to it so that uh hopefully more people will read it because you know you have things like i don't know like a shonen jump or whatever those thick magazines that have a chapter from a bunch of different things yeah so if you have if you see something in color you might it might draw in somebody that doesn't normally read that story just because it's in color and it yeah. gives a little bit of uh, specialness to it. Yeah. So for, for most manga, you usually just see that in the, like in the first chapter of the story. Um, because, you know, the first chapter is the one where they want to hook you in. Yeah. But uh, with, with the origin, they actually launched an entire magazine around Gundam just so they could showcase this work. So he got a lot more opportunities to, to put them in color. And if you actually count the page numbers of the chapters, all the chapters are different numbers of pages. So he crazy. Yeah. He really had the opportunity to just pace it the way that he wanted to, like he wasn't beholden to doing like, you know, 20 pages, every installment or, 30 pages or whatever like he could do do something that was like 30 he could do something that was like 70 pages but his chapter was over when it was over you know mm-hmm. so there, there's definitely a, a cool sense of purity to that and because because it was like the the main feature of the magazine he was able to color more pages and fortunately they've kept those color pages for the american version yeah, they look really, really good. It just, you know, I like the art regardless, but it, it is something where 
it makes me imagine a version of this book where the whole thing was colored, you know? Yeah, that would be incredible. That would. That would. Yeah, I listened to Manga Splaining, another mm-hmm. uh, podcast where they strictly focus on manga. And last month, they actually covered this book. And uh, Chip Zdarsky, he, he usually doesn't care much or think too highly about the color that he sees in the manga that they read. But he actually had praise for the use of color in this one. He he actually thought it was great. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Did you have any other thoughts about the artwork? Um, not really. Like I'm, I'm, I feel like we've said, uh, pretty much everything there was to say, uh, like I do think it's really pretty or not pretty, but it's good looking stuff, you know? Yeah. Um, like I, I, I can definitely see its appeal um, and why it's had so much like lasting power, for sure. Mhm. Mhm. Yeah. Yep. You got any uh, final thoughts? Uh, I guess my only final thought is is a couple funny little details. Um, I'll share with you because you didn't watch uh, the anime before, but in the, in, in the book, when we first see Amuro, he's like you said earlier, he's this uh, really obsessive computer guy, right? Like you just see him on a computer and, and he's studying schematics of mobile suits, even looking into his dad's files to learn about the Gundam. Mm -hmm. But Mm -hmm. in the anime, they didn't do it like that. You still have that scene where he's at his house and Frau comes to see him, but instead of looking at a computer, looking at schematics he's actually just looking through a microscope looking at something uh i don't really remember what it was but um he actually in the in the anime he he doesn't know what his dad is doing and so so when they find the uh when he finds the gundam in the anime he also finds an instruction manual <laughs> that's how he learns how to pilot it <laughs> Yeah, that probably makes more sense in the manga, or like, that's a change for the manga where it, it justifies him being as talented as he is a little in in a way that makes more sense, right? Yeah, it makes way more <laughs> sense for him to have been studying the Gundam schematics than for him yeah. to just stumble upon an instruction manual. Like, <laughs> even the way that he finds the instruction manual is pretty funny because he's he's like. Uh, walking past these guys in a jeep and then they're they're trying to enter into a, a bunker or something but then uh an explosion hits them and their jeep gets blown up so he as amro ducks for cover the explosion knocks the instruction manual in front of his face <laughs> and he picks it up and he's like huh what's this gundam <laughs> and, then, and then he climbs into the gundam and then he turns it on, and then he sees a Zaku standing over him, and he's like, what do I do? And then he opens the manual, and he flips through the pages. Where are the <laughs> weapons? Okay. And then he learns how to shoot the gun. <laughs> I got this. <laughs> it's just funny, man, because it's like he's got basically like a folder or a binder with a bunch of paper in it, and he's just yeah. flipping through it when he's in a life-and-death battle. <laughs> uh, yeah, exactly. In real life, 
would he really even have the amount of time it would take <laughs> to to do exactly what he needed to do? Like, I'm pretty sure he would have been dead, like, a hundred times over by then. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. I like the one of the final moments in this chapter, too. Um, just the scene when White Base makes it to Earth, and then all the refugees are looking out the window, and they're looking at Earth. Like, I don't know. There was something kind of moving about that. Just the older people telling their kids that this is where they were born and you know it's got real land and real oceans and the coloring in that scene is it's it's simple but it's effective man like i for some reason that that scene really resonated with me too Mm -hmm. yeah i'd forgotten about that scene but yeah you're you're right there is something about that entire moment where they're just marveling these people who were born who'd lived most of their lives out in these outer colonies, like coming back to the home world and just, I guess, reveling in, in what it's like to have natural resources again, you know, Mm -hmm. as opposed to this artificially generated environment that they're so accustomed to. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. That was a really good moment. I'd forgotten about that. Any final thoughts, Albert? Well, I uh, I know that there are like twelve volumes of this book, and I'm I'm kind of curious to see what the progression is going to look like throughout the next eleven that we're going to follow up with. Mm-hmm. Um, we mentioned that this first volume felt really quick. Um, like it felt like a lot happened within a very short period of time. So I'm, I'm kind of curious, like how much passage of time will continue as the series, as the series continues. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't really have any guesses as to what the series is going to look like it. It, I don't know. Uh, well, I guess my one guess is that. It feels like the Federation are, you know, they're they're the good guys here, right? So it's just going to be this constant escalation and ratcheting up between Shar and Amuro. And, yeah, I, like, I, I imagine that as the One shall pro- stand, one shall fall. Exactly, exactly, right? <laughs> they're just going to keep ratcheting up the tension between these two until we get to a point where uh it's just going to come to this final head between these two characters it Mm -hmm. it's interesting like hearing you talk about it and how char was this breakout character and amuro isn't or, or isn't as i guess beloved yeah uh just comparatively speaking, I mean, I think people still have love for Amaro, but they don't yeah. love him as much as they love Char. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I I will admit that visually, just in terms of his design, there isn't anything about him that particularly jumps out. I mean, he looks just... So, Amaro? Yeah. Yeah. Like, relative to everybody else in the 
in the Federation. He just he looks he just like a normal looks, kid. Yeah, he just looks like a normal civilian. You know, yeah. just so he doesn't have he's, any. He's not more handsome than anybody else. He doesn't have like yeah stylish clothes or hair or anything. He's just yeah. His just features looks regular. His features are very exactly regular, right? So, I, I yeah, I guess it it only helps Char to be more recognizable in in the long run. Yeah, I mean, he's got the mask. He's he's the he's only one looking. who has a. He's good looking even when he takes off the mask. Yeah, his uh his Zaku is red when everybody else's Zaku is is green. Yeah. He has a nickname because he's an ace pilot, and and even the Federation knows to fear him. Yeah, like he's a guy with a big reputation. It just feels like he he's got a lot more going for him. Yeah, he can do no wrong. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, like I I imagine as the series progresses that there's going to come uh, a final conflict or a head between these two these two characters. Mm-hmm. You know. Like, yeah, I, I don't know who's going to win. I don't know, uh, who lives and who dies. Um, yeah, I'll, I'll just have to keep reading to, to see how that ends up. Yeah, man, I'm looking forward to it (laughs) for sure. All right, everybody. Thanks for listening to between the gutters. You have any fancy sign-off words or anything you want to say, Albert? <laughs> do we just end uh, it awkwardly? Effervescent. <laughs> <laughs> no, um, I, you know, I just want to remind our listeners, uh, you know, if you uh, don't follow us on uh, Instagram, please, you know, follow us there on Between the Gutters, uh, Between the Gutters podcast, and. You know, just see what we've got to post. We're gonna post some images from uh, from Gundam: The Origin, so you can see what we were talking about. And uh, you know, if you have any questions, feel free to email us at between the gutters at uh, between the gutters podcast at gmail.com. Sounds good. Peace out, everybody. Bye, guys. <laughs> <laughs>